Well, you guys know the drill. Let us stand now to hear the reading of God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're just going to read three verses this morning, kind of only going to cover three verses this morning. Um, that does not mean the sermon's going to be short, it just means we're covering three sermon, three verses. So, sorry to get your hopes up. Um, it is Mother's Day, sorry. Um, let's hear the word of the Lord together. Verse 9. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Today, particularly, I don't normally highlight this. It's there for your availability. But if you got a bulletin when you came in, you're going to want to have it close at hand because there's a lengthy... um, uh, quote of the second line of confession in there that I will reference later in the sermon, and it might be this very easy for you to see in with your own eyes. I'm going to go a little off script for a second, because it seems like there's a theme this morning that's been shared in our Sunday morning class with our adults, um, and Kirk just mentioned it, just the grief that we bear when we have loved ones, people that for all intents and purposes, shared the same faith that we have shared and who have walked away in some form or denied the faith or maybe denied the faith in their works and their lifestyles. Um, I've been reminded over the last couple of months of something similar. I started out in ministry in 1998, uh, serving as an intern at my home church at First Baptist Church of Roanoke, Virginia. And... um, the man that was the student pastor was a very good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, still in ministry to this day. And uh, I, got my, I got thrust into the whole church work ministry, calling through this man's love and inter- interest in my life. And I became an intern there. And uh, there was a, several youth. Of course, it was a very large youth ministry. And we were, we were investing in these youth. And we would go all these trips. And we had a youth council. And this was a very tight-knit group of people um, growing up in high school, all these kids for multiple decades, you know, or this, this, and, and Ali had served in this church for, uh, at this point in his role, for like 15 years. And that's a long, that's a long time for a youth pastor to stay in one role. And uh, so over the last few months, one of the youth who then became an intern following me, named JL and his wife Jacqueline, um, they decided they wanted to do a reunion. And if you don't know my friend JL, he likes to throw a big party and he knows how to throw a big party. And so in July, we're supposed to all gather in Roanoke for a big reunion, have Allie come back. He lives in South Carolina now, and him and his wife, and then bring back all the youth and as many youth who are willing to come and former youth workers. And and I've been part of this thread, this message board, and my heart's been really, really broken by the fact of so many people who have people that I've known and invested in, discipled, who are on youth leadership teams and even adult workers who are saying, I don't go to church anymore. I don't really want to go to church anymore. 
In fact, I don't really want your faith anymore. I mean, this openly, just like people who knew each other and were friends, close friends, I don't want this. I've embraced a lifestyle that's contrary to the gospel. And your heart breaks. And, and, and I'm not talking about just a handful of people. I'm talking about like a sizable percentage of the people we reached out to. Two or three hundred people. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just guessing here, 25%. In some form, maybe they're denied or walked away from faith, not part of the church or more. Ardently against the Christian faith. In some capacity, one way or the other. But I believe, by God's grace, the passage we have before us this morning is exactly what we need. I wasn't intending to even share that this morning, but I got this message, some of these messages this week, and then hearing this morning the burdens that are on some of our people's hearts, it just seems so appropriate, and it seems like this text is exactly written for us in this moment, not just for the church at Corinth. I think we've got to remind ourselves when we read and we study God's word that God does not intend his word to just stay static in one moment, that it, it transcends that moment into for his people through all times and ages until Jesus returns. And so the main idea this morning that I just want to just kind of tease out from these three verses and how important this passage is now in light of just what I just said, it's just, to me, it's, um, I don't know, it's pretty heavy right now for me. The church must be unambi unambiguous about sin and the threat it poses to ensnare Christians with false faith that voids the actual sovereign saving activity of God. Let me say that again. The church in this moment, in this day, must be unambiguous about sin and the threat it poses to ensnare Christians with false faith that, will avo that voids the actual sovereign saving activity of God. I think we see all that in these three verses this morning. And I hope and pray it'll be a help to us, an encouragement to us. Let me get to the context. So you know we've been in this book called 1 Corinthians, this first letter we know of to, from Paul. It's in our scriptures. Um, and Paul's been addressing a whole number of things. One was spiritual pride. Uh, we've been dealing with... Um, uh, been dealing with just uh, allegiances, human allegiances, and tribalism, and all kinds of things. And then a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we got into chapter 5, which marks kind of a transition where Paul's beginning to deal with another sin beyond that spiritual pride that's going on in the church. Uh, and there we find that there's this grave itch issue arising in the church of kind of indifference to sin, particularly sexual sin, and, and particularly a sexual sin that is even the pagans would, would know is wrong. Uh, I just think that's a really important part to remember. Like even they, everyone knows it's wrong. We all know intuitively it's wrong no matter how much we ardently defend it. And, that, and, and friends, that's not, that's not different for us today. So the key issue that stands, as a, this key issue stands as a kind of a launching point for Paul in chapter 5 to dive deeper into the sin issues that exist in that Corinthian church and frankly exist in the church even to this day. And the key idea that Paul notes that relates to our study today is, is found in verse 11 in chapter 5. And here's what he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So that, see how it pairs with the text we're, we're dealing with today. Paul has a deep concern about how the church handles sin. 
So many times we focus outside of us and how we need to change everybody else and the world around us and the church itself remains hidden in its sin and its own silos of sin. And then we are shocked and surprised when 25% of your former youth ministry is not following Jesus anymore. And we shouldn't be shocked because this is a very real threat to the church. And so you remember back when we studied this, um, back, I guess it's been, what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, Paul was not concerned, as I said before, Christians, our need to, and how we interact with the civil world, with non-Christians of all varieties. Of course the church has to interact with them. We live in a world where we're sharing with unbelievers. And so but his focus is not that we would, that we would focus mostly on that, um, and live as some kind of like separatist community in the world. Rather, Paul's concern here is that as we are integrated in the world, that we understand the holy integrity that the church must display that's rooted in our new identity in Jesus. Because as we're going about in the world, what the church world needs most is that we are a shining array of God's glory through his redeeming work of Jesus in our lives. That's not perfection. That's not meaning that Christians won't struggle with sin. But what it does mean is that those people who struggle with sin are always running back to Jesus as the only antidote for that sin. And always resting in his accomplishments for them. And I can't stress this enough in these days as we're dealing with these very hard issues about dealing with sin in the church. And so it's this problem that... Of, of, of just kind of indifference to the church that lies above that whole issue with the stepson and the stepmother that we talked about a few weeks ago. It's the kind of, it's, it's what he's dealing with and desires for us to wrestle with in this passage in this larger section is being aware of the indifference that settles into our hearts. Being aware of the self-deception that clouds our church, church's perception um, of what has actually been accomplished for us in Jesus. And so I have two major points that will have a few things under it for us this morning. First is Paul will give us a dire warning concerning the unrighteous and their eternal dwelling. And then he's going to come back and say, but don't forget the hopeful promise you have in what Jesus has accomplished, that we are in Christ. And so let's just talk about that first point for a few minutes. A dire warning concerning the unrighteous, the unrighteous and their eternal dwelling. Dwelling, He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know this? It's the central idea that Paul is stressing and how much he's concerned about the church getting this. That believers get this. That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. So important is it that it's mentioned twice in this passage, just in three verses. Here at the beginning, and then after he gives his laundry list of all the different sins that are, that are corrupting the church, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you think it's just Paul dealing with this wayward church at, in Corinth, these 
no, it's actually not. It's quite much a staple of Paul's instructions to many of the other churches he started. And we can see this in other letters. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. Suffer with me to hear this passage. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, he says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, here we go, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not convinced that this is a major theme of Paul's writings? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first six verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may, she, for you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral and impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Very, very important point that Paul stresses in all the churches. I think we can make the assumption here that this is probably a point he brought to all the churches that he helped start in his ministry. The point is that this is not a minor theme. In Paul's writings, nor in the Bible, and it's not limited to a specific church like Corinth, which was a hot mess, as we all know. It was a normative concern, brothers and sisters, a core that and a core understanding that all churches were expected to accommodate, to adhere to, from the healthiest of the churches that are out there, which Ephesians would have been considered one of the healthiest and strongest churches, to the least healthy, and Corinth would be on that short list. So what does Paul mean when he says the unrighteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the idea of the kind of unrighteousness noted here um, as, well, is, is, uh, and as well as elsewhere is one rooted in one's positional standing or nature. It's their, their, their sinful identity, their sinful practice are the natural disposition, are the natural disposition of all of us. So we're born into an orthodox understanding of the nature of man out once, once in, in Adam's fall means that we're all born into sin and that by nature we are unrighteous. That's what Paul has in mind here. You are not unrighteous because you engage in sin. You engage in sin because you are unrighteous. Sinners, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We say it another way. Sinful practice follows sinful nature. It's not a cleanup exercise where we scrub the outside of the old tomb. It's something that must affect us on the inside deeply and must be something that changes in us deeply and something that we can't change within ourselves by ourselves. And so what is our nature? I mentioned it just a second ago, but let's be very clear about it. All mankind is born under, and I'm going to use some very technical theological language, under the federal headship of Adam. So that all that Adam's inheritance is, 
is our inheritance. And what is Adam's inheritance? Wrath. Judgment. Because it's his failure to do what God commanded him to do in that garden. And that, that nature is transferred to all his posterity. You and me, every son and daughter born of Adam and Eve. That is us. That is where we stand. And so what Paul is dealing with here, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He has first in mind that positional standing that then produces all the things that come along with that in terms of that list we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. It helps us understand what's important here about all of this. It helps us understand that why, why, they, why we don't inherit the kingdom of God, that our position of standing with God is due to our, the headship still being in Adam and only those who are under the headship of Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross, only in that can you be freed. Only in that will you have your kingdom of God in you. The fruit of the life in Adam, in our Adamic state, is corruption, judgment, and ultimately condemnation. We need a Christocentric state, right? We need to have Christ at the center, Christ who washes the tomb from the inside out through his work of the Spirit, which we'll get to towards the end of our time. So Paul's concern by stating this to the Corinthian church is this. He's concerned, number one, with a willful indifference. The question that he poses indicates what he's talking about. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know this? I mean, think about the weight and the, and the power and the unction that you can almost feel in Paul's words from this. Are you completely unconcerned with the nat- of what will happen to the unrighteous? Do you not know the seriousness of sin, in other words? There seems to be a willful and callous heart towards sin in the, this church. And frankly, he warns about it, as we've already mentioned, in all the other churches because it can set in so easily and so deceptively in ways that you and I will be blind to because we tend to live in silos. But he doesn't stop there. He asks the question, but then he commands something. He commands them to come out of the silo to, to, to relieve themselves of the blinders of their own self-deception. Look what he says there. Do not be deceived. And then he follows with this list after that. Now, we and I can be deceived in two different ways. We can certainly be deceived by allowing the wisdom of the age to infiltrate, infiltrate how we view our standing with Christ. To, the, the standing of the age will, will, help us, will, will cause us to reinterpret what the Bible says that has been clear and that church has affirmed for centuries and centuries and centuries. And this is certainly a problem then and it's a problem for the church today. And here's the problem. The threat when this happens is not outside the church. It's very much in the church. So you think back to those of us who are church history nerds, back to the onset of Protestant liberalism in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And you had guys like Harry Emerson Fosdick, who basically chopped the Bible up and said he didn't affirm any of the divine nature or the miraculous nature of the Bible. His forefather, Frederick... um, Schleiermacher was one of those insider voices 
who was, cha- helping the, who was causing the church to reinterpret its foundational convictions and confessions. Friends, there's always been movements and there always will be movements until Jesus returns that will seek to rethink, to reinterpret biblical revelation in light of modern sensibilities. Do not be unaware of this. Do not, Paul says, be deceived by these things. But there's another way that you and I are oftentimes deceived. By ourselves. Um, We have big hearts. And so we don't, we have good friends, like I mentioned earlier, and we want to have a tender heart, and we want to give as much, much leash as we possibly can in that moment. And so we get there, well, maybe how far can I, how far can I go in that direction before I've actually compromised the gospel altogether? And so we can be deceived by our own selves. And that's pretty much what Paul's dealing here with here more than anything else. He's dealing with the fact that this sometimes empathetic impulse, which is a good thing. The church should have empathy in some, de- to some degree in a healthy way, but we, should, we can so easily deceive ourselves of the deadly nature of sin and, or accommodate that sin into the Christian life, whether it's in our own life or in the lives of those we love so dearly. We easily live in silos that blind us from the reality as we hide out in those silos, and those silos can be silos of pseudo-comfort, silos of pseudo-passions, Silos of pseudo-identities, silos of pseudo-securities. All of these are threats to the gospel. All these are threats to your faith and my faith. Every last one of them are. And so what are we not to be deceived about? Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor will inherit the kingdom of God. It's hard to read that list, is it not? Not because there's any danger to want to affirm any of these things, but like no one wants to sound like the mean guy in the room, right? But Paul, he puts a real list about real sinful identity groups and their practices. You have to. Like, out of that positional standing in our unrighteousness I mentioned a minute ago, There are all kinds of those manifestations of that. And this is what Paul's dealing with. He's actually dealing with identities. Not just those who practice certain things, but those who are identified with them. The sexually immoral. The idolaters. The adulterers. uh, Those men who practice uh, homosexuality. He's dealing with their... They've identified with their sin. They can't seem to think of their lives apart from their sin. This list is important because of how frequent it is to hear Christians, or how infrequent it is to hear Christians talk about real sin. We, even when we pray and when we talk with one another, how often do we kind of talk about sin in a very general way? We should never talk about sin in a general way. And so in this list, there are kind of two larger categories. You might say the first four or five are dealing with ardently sexual sin. Sexual idolatry, and the second is more the general um, rebellious, debaucherous kinds of lifestyles, self-seeking lifestyles that characterize what it means to be unrighteous. And so it's really interesting that Paul deals with this sexual idolatry. And again, friends, we might think things have changed a lot over the last 30, 40, 50 years, but nothing's new under the sun. These issues have been around since the fall. And so he says, 
sexually, the sexually immoral, the porneo in Greek. It's a blanket description, a blanket identity marker that extends to any sexual activity, number one, either outside the covenant of marriage or two, outside the natural order of God's good creation. That's what's in view here. Either outside the covenant of marriage, and in case you're tempted to say, well, okay, then as long as I'm married, I can do whatever I want to. Wrong. Um, outside of God's like, natural order of his good design. And then he says, neither will the idolaters. Now, that seems to be interesting. Like, is that part of this list of sexual conduct? And I think it does, because idolatry is the height of what? Self-worship. Putting ourselves in our self-love for one another. And so whatever sexual sin or proclivity you may have that's outside of the ordered way in which God has designed it is an act of self-love. And so he incur- he's basically saying this is, this is the height, you might say, or one of the heights of, of sexual immorality is one of the heights of idolatry. And then he talks about adulterers, those, those who are too quick and don't feel the weight of breaking their marital bonds with one another. And men who practice homosexuality. And again, people do all kinds of weird exegetical gymnastics to get around this, especially in our age today. And as if somehow, no, okay, he's talking about this, he's talking about that, or he's talking about... Listen, friends, the text is clear. These are outside the natural order of God's good design. And it's hard. To, you know, it's hard to, to, to want to speak clearly, and to, but at the same time still wanting very much to love people who may find themselves in these places, but we must seek to do so especially in the household of faith. It will be no surprise, it should be no surprise that people in this room will struggle with sin and oftentimes sin of a sexual nature, which we'll deal with next week. We, we kind of tend like, okay, we look on the polish saying, I'm not, it's not really struggling, but I'm telling you folks, by the fact that we're designed, we are sexual beings, and again, we'll talk about that next week. But Paul is saying, that's this a particular issue in this Corinthian church, and, and it's listed in the other ones, but more so here in this particular list that Paul offers to the Corinthian church. And then he gets to the second part, the backside of the category here, this general sinful, um, rebellious, and um, debaucherous lifestyle, thieves, Indifferent stealing and robbery with no sense of guilt. Greedy, uh, selfish, self-interest, drunkards, undisciplined and uncontrolled, living, revilers, always looking for a fight, always looking to divide, divide people and divide even the God's church, argumentative. See, what... Well, we're very quick to downplay that one because sometimes we'll do that under the banner of I'm trying to defend the church. But there's too many revilers in the church today, friends. Too many of them. Swindlers, they're just deceptive. They're fraudulent. See, the point here in this first major point of the warning, the dire warning, we just got to just kind of rest in what Paul is saying. These identities... And their, and, their, and their associated practices, they're incongruent with our new life in Christ. So now that Paul has dealt with this warning, he now moves and shifts in verse 11 to a kind of hope-filled reminder to this church in Corinth and to all believers everywhere who would stumble upon this wonderful text of Scripture, this hope-filled reminder of who we are in Christ. 
And he begins this reminder in verse 11 with, and such were some of you. There's a couple things that I want to say about this passage that I think are very important. One is it's not licensed for, like when you read verses 9 and 10 separated from verse 11, you're doing an injustice to this text. Because we'll read this list and we'll think, okay, great, I'm doing a noble thing for God, and I'm just going to sit out here and just keep, keep on proclaiming these kind of things. But then they don't give the indication of the grace of God that has been work, at work in you. Such were some of you, brothers and sisters. Such was the case of many of the Corinthian believers who came out of these very things themselves and had been rescued by them, and maybe even perhaps they're still there. And so Paul's concern is primarily to the church who has forgotten that such were some of them. Such were some of them. This is Paul's big crescendo. Such were some of you. And if you don't get that, you're really not going to get the rest of the verse. Are you? Am I? I'm not going to get the weight that I was washed, that I've been sanctified, that I've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. We too were once standing in Adam like the most ardent, the most angry, the most defiant unbeliever in the world. Everyone in here outside of Christ, and I've said this in some shape or form like this, is is capable and is as guilty of Hitler-sized sins as Hitler was. Not that we may have performed them, right? By God's grace and God's restraining grace, we didn't. But it doesn't mean that we couldn't have potential for those things. Such was some of us. In our law gospel reading, good providence, by the way, Jim. Jim does most of our worship, does our worship order each week. How wonderful this is, because I'm actually going to be dealing with this Ephesians in this text. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were. And once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's chief concern is that we walk in Christ, not in our old selves. And the only way that we can start doing that is if we recognize of the great grace and the great work and the great power it took to resurrect us from that old man. The old man and his ways are not congruent with the new man and his ways in Christ. The problem that the church continues to have in every generation is this kind of stapling on our identity. So we'll take the Christian life and we'll say, oh, yeah, I'm in Christ. I mean, I, I, I have trusted in him. I've been baptized. I've been washed with him. And that's amazing. That's wonderful. And all that kind of stuff. But we still want to staple on all kinds of other identities onto our life. The list that Paul talks about up, up above. We still want to identify with them. We still, want to, we still have a hard time parting ways with that old, that old man. The alcoholic Christian. The porn-addicted Christian, the gay Christian, the greedy Christian, the materialistic Christian. And these are not the way we should look at our Christian life. It's a poor understanding of what it means and what has been accomplished for us in our salvation. We so easily forget the inside-out 
reality of our new nature in Christ. He came inside and he washed us from the inside out and then begins to make transformation on the outside of us. Sometimes painfully slow, though. Painfully slow. We try to align our Christian faith too often with these outside pseudo-identities. We often, um, it, how often is it the tendency of us, friends and brothers and sisters, to work out our faith, though, from the outside in? Just clean up our act, look presentable, look like we got it all together to the world and, frankly, even to other believers. It puts the power of the gospel in chains when we do that. Not that the power of the gospel actually has changed, but when we live in such a way that we're focusing on us, the cleanup effort on us from the outside, we are denying the power of the gospel by white-knuckling our sanctification. You can't white-knuckle your sanctification, brothers and sisters. I can't do it either. And trust me, I've tried. I bet you have too. It's a problem with the Roman Catholic view of justification and sanctification. If you're not familiar with this, right? They, they tend to collapse law and gospel on top of each other. And they mix, okay, we have a hope in God's grace, but this is an infused grace. And so God infuses enough grace in you so that you can have your human effort to go and clean up the rest of your life. That kind of Roman doctrine is an assault to Scripture. It's an assault to the message of the gospel and what has been revealed to us. It's an assault to the confession once revealed to all the saints and all the places everywhere. To designate our new identity in Christ with our old identity in sin or to try to designate that our new identity in Christ is somehow another aided by, um, apart from what Christ is doing on the inside, which we'll talk about here in a second, and, and it's somehow me trying to do the good work effort in me without the power of the Spirit, it's a, it's, it's a really twisted thing. Really twisted thing. Notice what Paul says. But you were washed. Who did the washing? Not you. Just like when we were babies and our parents had to scrub our rear ends. Sorry if that's a little, that's a parent, that's a mom thing right there, okay? So there, there's your Mother's Day application, all right? Sorry. But you get it. You were sanctified. Who sanctified you? Not you. And justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his Spirit. And so that's when we get to the other half of the glorious text there from Ephesians, is it not? That Paul's equivalent to this text in his letter to the Ephesians is what follows from what we just read in verse 4 through 6. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, he, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what we need to recognize here, what Paul is trying to get the church to understand there in, in Corinth and for us here, is that we're going to understand this new life in Christ, this work of sanctification, is a two-folded, two-sided coin. It's, it's positional sanctification. Follow that idea. Just give me a second. And then there's progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification is the already. You were already born into sin under Adam. But in Christ, you were already saved fully in Jesus apart from anything you do from that moment forward. 
positionally what Paul is trying to remember, and this is what this primary text is, you were positionally sanctified, positionally washed. He's talking about the end result when Jesus comes back, and this is who your new identity is. What Jesus has accomplished is full and it's finished, and that's a wonderful thing for us to grip our entire souls and grip our hope until Jesus Returns. Paul is speaking here of the already position we have in Christ. And to, to live stapling on that old identity into our new life is a grave contradiction in terms. But it is, on the other side, progressive. And this should give us some great hope, too. That you're already saved. Everything that has been needed to be done for you to be saved and for you to be glorified one day with Jesus has been done but progressively, it's not yet fully realized. There's always in the gospel story, the gospel life, an already reality of your assurance in Jesus that's never going to change, but the un- unfinished, not yet reality of your faith. Does it mean that we're saying here is, what it means here is that, that, that Christians are going to struggle with sin. Even at times, very difficult seasons, long-term seasons with sins. And by the way, just, just, just a side note, all of those people that I mentioned earlier from my former youth ministry, all the folks that Kirk was mentioned earlier, and other you folks in here that are dealing with family members who are wandering away in sin, our hope says that if the faith that Jesus started there, if it was real and something he did, They'll only wander temporarily. Now, if they wander there for for a long time, it could mean also the opposite. And I know that's hard. And I'm dealing with that. Close friends, people I worked with, people I administered to. See, the Christian life, unfortunately, what a lot of people want to make the Christian life into is some kind of triumphalistic campaign. No, we will struggle. We will fight. We will wrestle with the flesh and the powers and the principalities of this world. This is what Paul talks about. This is why Paul is awesome. When it comes to Romans 7, Paul is speaking about a real man who has known the power of the gospel and yet still struggles in his flesh with sin. So I find it, he says in verse 7, verse 21, I mean, chapter 7, verse 21 from Romans, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my member, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of the sin that dwells in my members. This does not sound like a man who's been triumphalistically conquered everything in his life, does it? You just cannot read this text and read it that way. You have to read it from the vantage point of a, a man who's writing a letter, and he's deep into the letter about the gospel, and he's saying, but friends, just let you know, this is war. This is hard. This is real. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in the flesh I serve the law of sin. How many of us are struggle with that dichotomy? And we will in different degrees. But Paul says, even so, take sin seriously. Even so, remember your identity that has been accomplished for you in the washing and the sanctification and the justifications you found in Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Your sanctification is an already and it's a not yet reality. 
You're in the midst of the great arc of your redemptive story. And what Christ has accomplished is sure, but also just as sure as Christ will change you. One degree after another degree until Jesus returns. This is why I love confessions. This is why I think the church is helped by holding on to confessions. It's why I love the Second London Confession, chapter 13, on this idea of sanctification. It's on the back right here, the whole chapter, three paragraphs right there. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I'm going to spare you. I feel like you guys could probably read that on your own. But I am going to do the second paragraph. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it never is completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. At the very heart of these instructions from Paul is that idea. Take seriously about the the consequences of the unrighteous and what they will inherit. But remember that your inheritance has changed in Christ. And because of that, you must wage war against sin. I must wage war against sin. And so here's my last three very fast-track points for you. Number one, Christians should beware of taking sin lightly in our lives. Making a pattern of sin i.e. that it's a normative reality of your life that's unchecked and unconfronted, unrepented of, reflects the perspective of someone who has not relinquished their former life and therefore looks more like the prodigy of Adam than the prodigy of Jesus. Even so, the Christian should, number two, expect the Christian life to be a wrestling match to be war, to be like war, because it is. And so Christian make war, right? And number three, how do we make war? Just do exactly what Paul says. Remember that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in Jesus remembering the accomplishments of Christ, holding on to them. That's the only way you make war. And, of course, you make war and remember those things by taking heed of God's word, being part of the ordinary means of grace in the church. That's, that's part of the war because the church is called to help each other remain anchored to the gospel hope we have, to keep us in, in the word and in prayer. And remember that you have the resources of the Holy Spirit living within you. And you're not a victim to your circumstances. And you're not a victim to the reality of, 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 of whatever may have been um, brought on you at some point that you feel is justifying your sin right now. No, you live in the Spirit and utilize all the resources thereof that will renew you daily until Jesus returns. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, this morning as your people gather and we prepare ourselves for the table this morning, my sincere prayer, my hope for my brothers and sisters in this room is that we would take heart in this war that we have with sin until Jesus returns and that we will take sin seriously in the life of the church so that we would live as a beautiful display of the work of grace that has been 
brought into our lives and, and we've been bought by in Jesus. And so, Father, help us now as we come and prepare our hearts for this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen.